And one of the things about storms is that it doesn't matter if you're in a storm or not in a storm. You've been in a storm in the past or you're going to be in a storm in the future. Life, if you look at it, is almost to the point where it's just one storm after another storm after another storm. And we have that little lull in the middle, which is so nice. You know, one of the things living here in Florida, we, we have our hurricanes. You know, when, when the hurricane passes, the next day, those are beautiful days. They're clear. The air actually dries out usually because it sucks all that moisture away. And we usually have some beautiful days. I don't have any power, air conditioning, or food. But, but other than that, it's pretty good time after a hurricane. But we understand living here in Florida about, about storms. And another fortunate thing about storms, about the hurricanes that happen here, is we usually have plenty of notice. You know, it's rare anymore that one surprises us. So we have notice. The problem, the difference between that and the, and the storms of life is oftentimes we don't see them coming. And we should. We should anticipate it more because we should all know that there's a storm coming. It may be a big storm. It may be a little storm. But there's storms coming. And if, if we are prepared for them, and if we recognize them, then maybe we can be a little better at handling them when they get here. Some storms are big, some storms are little. We're going to be spending most of our time this morning in, in Genesis 6 through 10, because if you're looking at storms, you've got to look at the biggest storm ever. And the biggest storm that ever impacted this world, of course, was the storm at the, the time of uh, Noah. And we won't have time to get through all this, because it's about four chapters long, and, and there's a lot of details. It's actually longer than that, if you want to really get into it. But we don't have time to unpack it all today, but we're going to look at a few things concerning the storm itself, and see if it helps us to better understand that storm to help us better understand storms here. Because even though that storm in Noah's day was a real physical storm, the storms that we normally are faced with are the storms of life. The storms of losing your job. The storms of losing somebody you care for. The storms of getting pulled over and getting a ticket. Those are all storms. Sometimes it's storms related to health. You, know, you weren't expecting anything. Everything's going along fine. And the doctor says, we need to talk. And now you're in the middle of a storm. Maybe your storm is somebody else's storm that you care about. Maybe somebody else got the bad news and you're riding through that storm with them. Our life is full of storms. Before we get to Genesis, though, our memory verse this week, it should be on your syllabus if you've got your, your little fill-in-the-blank paper there. Our, our, our verse, I think I put it on there, is John 16, 33. It says, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall, ye shall have tribulation. That's the storms. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus is telling us here that there's going to be storms. There's going to be times in our life where bad things are going to happen to us. But that's okay. Because even though these things are going to be bad, we can be of good cheer because he's already experienced it. He's already overcome it. One of the things I truly, truly am just humbly in awe of, of our creator, is our creator, unlike most of the mythos that are out there, the fake creators, our creator not only created, and not only is he hands-on with his creation, but he took on the body of his creation so that he could experience creation from our standpoint. Let that sink in for a minute. You don't see that in any of the other mythos. But this, the true God, the real God, is not only upstairs overseeing everything, he's right here with us experiencing it, and he took on the body of a man. 
talking about the body of a baby so that he could live here. You think, of, you know, think about, I don't know, maybe it's just my mind that gets blown by this. Maybe nobody else is with me on this. When I think about God, the creator of everything, the creator of universes, you know, they, they have telescopes that are looking further and further out. And the further out they look, the more and more amazing his creation gets. The God that created that, the God that puts it all together and, and holds it all in his hands, that same God stood on this earth and was hungry and was tired and was hurt. Not just physically, emotionally hurt by people turning against him. You say, why does that, why does that make me happy? You, you, that sounds like something I ought to be happy about. You know why it makes me happy? Because when I'm hurting, I know he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because our God went through the storm. He didn't just see him. I know God is all-knowing, so he really didn't have to experience it to understand it because he's all-knowing. But it helps me to know that. You know, there's times in our lives where, where we're called to come up beside somebody. Somebody's hurting. Somebody's going through a storm. We're called to come up beside them. And, and it's better if we can truly empathize with them, if we can truly understand what it is they're going through. Somebody lost a job. You've lost a job in the past. You can come up beside them. And although it's a different situation... You can honestly say to them, I've been where you are. I told the story before of, the, of a young lady that was here at the church, and, and, and she, she um, was due to have her um, child, uh, her labor induced. They were actually going to do a C-section and lose the child because of some problems she'd had in the past. And this was supposed to happen the next week, and she called us in the middle of the night. She says, my water broke. Now, normally that's like, hey, great, your water broke. No, this is a bad time because this baby's probably going to die. And so we told her, you need to call 911. You know, we'll beat you, but you need to call 911. By the time we got to her house, she lived in town. By the time we got to her house, the ambulance was already there. They're loading her up. And, and you know, what do I do? How do I come up alongside of a woman that may be losing either her life or her child's life and put my arm around her and say, I understand what you're going it doesn't work. Fortunately, God gave me a wife. And although this sounds like an odd statement, fortunately, she's experienced what it's like to lose a child. It sounds odd, doesn't it? I say fortunate because in that situation, she was able to come up alongside that person and not, not to minimize what she was going through by any means, but to stand with her, spend the night in the hospital with her, and be there with her as she lost this child. I couldn't do that. I could have. I would have had access because when I got to the hospital, they, they thought I was the, the father. And they're whisking me into the room. And I'm like, oh, wait, wait. Why am I getting a gown? No, no, no. I don't want to go in. <laughs> that was a whole different situation. But our God is that God. He's that God that doesn't just look down on us and oversee us. He's that God that can come right up beside us and say, I understand what you're going through. I understand the storm because I went through the storm. And you can be a good cheer because I overcame it. I overcame it. In Genesis 6 through 10, we see the story of, of Noah and the flood. The greatest storm that ever took place on the earth. It, it literally redefined the shape and the appearance of the entire earth. We still see evidence of that, that flood today, things like the Grand Canyon and, and other places where we see where that, that, that quick runoff of water 
in the days following the flood, and we, we see the, the evidence of that flood today. It forever changed the landscape, and it forever changed the history of humanity. But I want to look at these storms just real quick and look at a couple things I want to pull out of here. I want, first of all, I want you to look at the, the, the nature of storms. I want you to understand, number one on your sheets, I believe is the first blank. I didn't highlight my blanks this week for some reason, so we're probably going to be left with some empty. Brian will fill those in for you after the service. Storms always have a reason. Sometimes we think that storms are just by happenstance, but storms have a reason. The short answer to that is it's sin, but more specifically, I think it's A on your sheet, the first sin that usually causes most of our storms, that's our sin. That's our sin. Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. The, the principle of sowing and reaping is something that, that we try not to admit sometimes. We, we look at that as something as a positive. We plant something positive, we get something positive, but it's a negative as well. And here he's actually talking about it in a negative sense. In other words, God's not mocked. God knows about the people that are sinners. God knows about the evil that's being done in the world. He's not shocked. He's not shocked by the way our politicians act. He's not shocked by the way people in other countries act. He's not shocked by the way people on Facebook and our communities act. He sees it. He knows it. He's not mocked. They will reap what they sow. And it's a great verse for us to use when we're talking about other people, but we forget that we are other people. And what we sow is what we reap. My wife loves avocados. So when, when we were finally done with all this cold weather, because it was like 60 this morning, oh, I don't know how people do it. But so when we're finally done, we're going to be planting an avocado tree. And we're not, we're not going from seed because I don't have the patience. We're going to buy a tree and plant us so we, in a year or two we can start having avocados. I don't have to wait five or six years. So we're going to, we're going to do it that way. But, but we've grown them from seed before. You take the seed and you stick the little the, the toothpicks in or the matchsticks and you like submerge it, half submerge it in the water and pretty soon roots start coming out and everything. Now, how foolish would it be for me to do all that and plant it out there and then be disappointed because there was no oranges on my tree? That just sounds stupid, right? Not a word I like using, but that's what it would be. Just like if I went out and planted carrots and then was upset because I didn't get lettuce. No, if I plant an avocado... If I get anything, what am I going to get? Avocados. That's the way it works. And this just seems like so simple for us to understand. But in our lives, we don't understand that when we, when we plant lies and we plant deceit and we plant fornication and we plant all these sins, and of course our sins aren't as bad as everybody else's, but when we plant all of our not-so-bad sins, it's sarcasm for those that are so impaired, when we plant all those sins, and then we, then we get shocked that we get a storm in our life. You plant turmoil, you know what you get? You get turmoil. You plant lies, and none of us are perfect. I understand that. I'm not, I'm not trying to stand up here and say I'm better than everybody else. I have plenty of storms in my life. And the only difference is for me and, and most of the people that I talk to is, is I've recognized that when I'm in the storm that I caused it most of the time. It's all me. I am my own worst storm creator. I create the problems. I know that. And that's what Galatians 6, 7 is telling me. God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. 
There's another place that we get them from. We also get them from other sins. It's not just our sins. Sometimes my storm is caused by your sins. Sometimes your storm is caused by my sins. You see, we live in a world that is contaminated with sin. And we choose to turn a blind eye to the fact that the greater sin gets in the world, the worse it is for me. We, we kind of like want to separate ourselves. Say, well, that's the world, and I'm going to live my own personal righteous life, and I'm going to be okay. It's not the way it works. We're all on this boat together. And when the storm rocks the boat, it rocks the entire boat, not just some of the staterooms. We all get rocked. A lot of Christians out there, they'll say, well, I don't want to. I don't want to tell people about sin because that's their business. No, it's my business because your sin's causing storms in my life. And it's also my business because I love you. And I don't want to see you endure the storms. I don't want to see you hurt by those. Sin is our business. Over and over in the Word of God, He tells us that we need to be out out the business of our Father of telling the world about its sinful behavior. We need to draw a line in the sand and say that we won't tolerate those things. I remember as a child how much more important church was to the community than it is today. I remember when I was a Boy Scout and we were thinking about moving our meeting to, to one of the nights and, and somebody suggested, well, Wednesday night. And our scoutmaster, who was Jewish, stood up real quick and said, we can't do it on Wednesday night. If we do it on Wednesday night, none of the Christians will come to the Boy Scouts. He recognized that. He recognized that as not a, not a Christian, as a Jewish person. He recognized it because that's what our society did. And he was right. Today, if they schedule a Boy Scout meeting on Wednesday night, well, we have to go to the Boy Scout meeting. We can't go to church. There's no semblance of, 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 of need to be in church. We have people today that that should be here that aren't here because something more important came up. And our world is continually drifting away further and further from the gospel. And as we drift further and further away from the gospel, we will see both physical and emotional and spiritual storms get greater and greater and greater. In my lifetime, I can see and I know most of you can see, in physical storms around the world, we are seeing things in this world that we never saw before. We are seeing storms greater than any other storms we ever saw. We are seeing earthquakes bigger than before and more frequent. We are seeing tsunamis, tidal waves, more frequent and more intense than ever before. We are seeing hotter temperatures and colder temperatures than we've ever seen in recorded time. Why is all this happening? Because the world is travailing, the world is groaning, the world is dying. Now that brings me some hope because I know that in my mind, I can't prove this biblically, but in my mind I believe that we are ramping up for the end of the world, for that time when Jesus Christ is going to come back and take his church home. I pray to God that happens during my lifetime. If it does, awesome. If it doesn't, I close my eyes here, open them up with the Lord awesome. I win either way. But I believe that we're getting closer and closer, and we're also seeing more more intensity in in spiritual storms, more intensity in emotional storms than we've ever seen before. They're harder to measure, but they're bigger, and they're worse than they ever were before. 
Genesis 6. We're actually getting into our text now. Took me a while to get there, didn't it? Genesis chapter number 6, verse number 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sounds so familiar. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing, and fowl of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. This storm was caused by everybody else. I'm not saying Noah was sinless. We're going to talk about Noah here in a minute. But Noah went through this storm, and his family went through this storm that for the most part was caused by everybody else. He said, I'm not saying he's blameless. I'm not saying he was sinless. Oftentimes the storms we go through in our lives are because of other people. But what I really want you to see here is that oftentimes the storms that other people are going through is because of you. See, I can't, I can't control other people's sin. I can't control what Dave does. Even if his sins are affecting me, I can't, but I can control what I do so that my sins don't affect Dave. There's a principle in the Bible, uh, we generally call it the sins of the father, that the sins of the past generations impact us today. And whether that seems fair or not doesn't matter. It's what it is. And we don't have time to get in and explain all that, but, but use it this way. There's not much you can do to change what your grandpa did. But you can be the grandpa he should have been and make it better for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. See, we talk about other sins, understand that we are also another. And our sins impact other people's. If you've ever gone to a pond, a small pond, and, and you look at the pond, and it's, it, it, when, there, when there's no wind and there's nothing moving, it's like glass. But when you take a rock, even a small rock, and you throw it in the middle, it disrupts the entire pond. The waves start to go out, and when they hit the edges, they start going back in. And that little tiny rock disrupts everything. And our little tiny sin, those little secret sins, you know, the ones that you don't think anybody knows about, those that you only do when nobody else is around or nobody that you care about is around, those little secret sins that don't hurt anybody else, that's the rock in the pond that's affecting everybody that you love and everybody around you. By the way, you notice when you drop that rock in there, where are the biggest waves? Right around where the rock went in. That's your husband and wife. That's your children. That's the people you love the most. It doesn't stop there, but it has the greatest effect on them. The water doesn't need to know that the rock came in for it to be affected by it. And thirdly, sometimes the storms come for our benefit. Sometimes the storms come for our benefit. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10 says, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities than the power, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, 
in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. This is Paul speaking. And we, there's a lot, of, a lot of speculation over what this thorn in the flesh was. I can make a real good argument for about three or four different things. I can convince you of three or four different things. The truth is, I don't know because the Bible is vague. And I think the Bible is vague here on purpose. I know the Bible is vague on purpose because God doesn't make mistakes. Because I don't think he wants us to focus on what that thorn is. He wants us to focus on the way Paul dealt with it. You see, Paul had something, whether it was a, a, a person or a demon or a physical ailment or whatever that thing was, doesn't matter. He had something that in his mind was holding him back. And he prayed to God, God, take this storm away from me. And God answered his prayer. The way he answers a lot of our prayers, he said, no, I'm not taking it from you. You see, God allowed this storm in Paul's life because he knew Paul. And see, Paul's one of these guys that could get very full of himself very quick. Paul was, Paul was a brilliant person, very well studied a learned man. And because of that, sometimes Paul would get a little full of himself. And so God gave him this to kind of buffet him, hold him back, because now Paul couldn't do everything he wanted to do unless he relied upon Christ. You see, sometimes it's the smartest and the most powerful that need to be humbled and brought down just a little bit. Not because God wants to prove that he's God, because God doesn't have to prove anything to anybody, but because God loved Paul so much that he wanted Paul to rely upon him. Because he knew that if Paul would learn to rely upon him, Paul would do things much greater for his kingdom than what Paul would ever do on his own, in his own right. See, sometimes the storms come because God wants us to learn something. Sometimes the storms come because God wants to benefit us in some way. He wants to make us stronger. Sometimes the storms come so that we will lean upon him. In the Old Testament, they used to try um, silver and gold. They used to try it seven times. And what that meant was, that, or they'd purify it seven times. What that meant was they literally would almost boil it. They'd heat it up till it was melting, till it was red hot. If you put anything in it, it would ignite it, how hot it was. And when they would do that, the impurities, some of them would burn off. Some of them would sink to the bottom. Some of them would float to the top. So they'd skim off the top, pour off the good gold or the good silver, and they'd pour that off, let it cool, and then they'd do it again. And what they'd find is the second time they did it, a little more fell to the bottom. A little more floated to the top. And a little more burned off. And when they did this seven times, that was considered to be pure. That all the impurities were taken out. You see, sometimes God has to send a storm our way to heat us up a little bit and get us riled up. Because there's some, some stuff that needs to get out of our lives. There's some things that need to be burned out of our lives. And it's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to feel good. We see gold before it's purified is, is pretty much useless. It's not even good to look at. But once it's purified, it's something beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that most of you probably have some on you right now. Some gold or some silver. Something that's been purified and tried to make it useful, to make it malleable, to where it can be used by the jeweler to make something amazing. Sometimes the storms are for our benefit. Number two, we can, we can weather the storm only because of God's grace. We can weather the storms only because of God's grace. I don't think we talk enough about God's grace. 
me rephrase that. I don't think I talk enough about God's grace. Part of the reason is because grace is such an amazing thing, such an amazing concept that I can't even fully comprehend or understand why he even extends it to me. But he does. That's kind of the definition of grace. I don't deserve it. But yet he chooses to give me grace anyways. You see, we find in Genesis 6, 8, it says, one little phrase here, it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We know what happened to that storm. The storm, mankind was wiped off, except Noah found grace. Oftentimes, I've heard it taught that the reason why God saved Noah is because Noah was such a righteous man. Noah was so perfect that he couldn't destroy him. No, understand, the only reason why Noah survived that storm is because of God's grace. Noah did not deserve to survive the storm. This wasn't about Noah. This was about God's grace. And we weather the storms here on this earth not because we're so strong, not because we're so powerful, not because we're so learned, but because we survive the storms when we rely upon God's grace. The only reason we get from the beginning to the end of the storm is because God showed grace upon us. Now, I do want to point out, though, that, that there was a reason why Noah received God's grace. And I want to be very careful here because I don't want to, I don't want to set this up that there's a way that we earn grace or that we deserve grace because once we earn or deserve something it's not grace anymore we never get to a point in our spiritual life where we deserve god's grace that may be hard for some of you to understand or or stomach i think it's easy to understand but we never get that good because if we could get that good we wouldn't need god's grace the very definition of grace is that we're receiving something that we do not deserve a difficult concept for us to understand but that's what happened but it wasn't an accident that he received God's grace I want to look at three things here real quick that that how Noah found God's grace because it wasn't an accident that he chose Noah he tells us he tells us three things here in, in Genesis 6 9 it says these are the generations of Noah Noah was a just man a perfect in his generations and Noah walked with God that word perfect there means complete We'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. The first thing we see is that Noah was a just man. That's the first thing. You see, oftentimes we don't receive God's grace. We can't earn it, but we can can definitely do things that prevent God's grace in our life. By being unjust. By being unjust to people around us. By sowing that turmoil. By sowing the lies. By allowing continual sin to stay in our lives. We We can get ourselves to a point where we are unjust. And when we're unjust, we don't deserve God's grace. Now, to be truly just, we can't do that on our own. The only way we can be truly just, and this is going to sound kind of odd, is to be justified. Kind of makes sense, right? Literally, justified means that we, God treats us like we have no sin. The only way we can be justified is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. No work will get us there. Nothing we can do can get us there. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can become justified. Then, then that opens up the door for God's grace because he views us as not being sinners, even though we, of course, are sinners. But we have been justified. The second thing, it says, Noah uh, um, was a just man, perfect in his generations. Now, there's a couple meanings to this perfect of generations. One, we won't get into all of it, but there was some contamination in the bloodline of humans at that time. 
and that, that bloodline had been contaminated but not Noah's. And what this tells us is more about, less about the contamination. It tells us more about his family. His family lived, even though we know almost nothing about them, lived by the principles of God. This goes back to that other affecting. You see, it didn't start with Noah. It started with Noah's family. His family was right before God. His dad, his dad's dad, they were right before God. This is why it's important, dads, to be the spiritual leaders in your house. The church should just be reinforcing what you're already teaching your kids. You should be the spiritual leader. You should be right so that your child, as they grow, their generations will be perfect. Perfect means complete. He came from a good godly family. Number three, it says Noah walked with God. He walked with God. This wasn't just about what had happened in the past. Noah walked with God. What does it mean to walk with God? We know some of the things. We talk to God, right? We, we, we talk to God by praying. We listen to God through his word. But it means more than that. It means, it means involving God in every one of your decisions. Involving God in the big things and the little things in our life. Oftentimes we want to use God as, a, as an emergency box. And when something goes wrong, we want to cry out to God. But we need to be talking to God about what we're going to have for dinner. We need to be talking to God about our parking space at Walmart. We need to be talking about God, about all these little things that, you know, some people cringe. They're like, you pray for a parking spot? Yes, I pray for a parking spot. I've told you that before. I pray for all kinds of stuff. And I don't stop in the middle of the parking lot and get out and get on my knees and start praying. Although I'd, some people would probably open up for me. But, you know, it, I, I'm praying as I'm driving around. God, where do you want me to park? Sometimes he has me park in a place because he you know, wants me to be a witness or, or because I need more exercise or all different kinds of different things. I want to park where God wants me to park. Does that sound silly? It's not silly. We should pray to God even for the little tiny stuff. He walked with God. You know, when I, when I was studying this and I'm, I'm going through and I saw that walk with God, it started thinking, I started thinking to myself, you know, what, what does that look like to me? What does it look like to walk with God? And I understand to pray and I understand reading our Bibles. I understand involving in our decisions and all. But you know what? You know what came to my mind? When my wife and I first started dating, we worked together. And we weren't supposed to be dating. So we couldn't, you know, she was, we were in different departments. She was a manager. We were both worked at Target. I was, uh, we were different managers at Target, but we were in the same store. And we weren't totally supposed to be dating. It wasn't a written rule, but it was kind of one of those things like, you know, it's just going to create problems. And uh, so what we would do is after we would get off at night at Target, we were down in Delray Beach, Florida. And we were about a mile, two miles from the beach. So we would go down to the beach after we left in dark, middle of the night, and we'd park our car, and we'd go out, park our cars, and we'd go out on the beach, and we would walk together on the beach. That's where I fell in love with my wife, walking with her on the beach. You know, I, 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 of course, you know, I, I tell her it's when I first saw her face, I fell in love with her because she's so beautiful. But, you know, the reality of it is, is that, you know, we're walking on the beach. Why? Because it was so intimate. It was just the two of us. There was nothing to distract us. And we never, you know, there was never a plan. It wasn't like, well, let's walk down to the pier or let's walk down to this light. Or let's, we'd just walk together and we would talk together. And when we were ready to turn around and go back, we'd turn around and we'd go back. That's the picture I got when I got walking with God. Is we, it's not, he's not in front of us leading us. He's not behind us following us. 
We're side by side. It's an intimate experience. And we're just talking. And we're falling in love. Walk with God. Fall in love with God. Let him be involved in in your big decisions, little decisions, and everything. Number three. Noah survived the storm because he followed God's plan. Noah survived the storm because he followed God's plan. For the sake of time, I'm not going to get into all these verses, but I've written them down on there for you. You can go back and look at them. In verse 614, he, he begins to tell Noah, this is how I want you to build the ark. Do it this way. And you know what Noah did? He did it God's way. As we get a little further down, he, he in Genesis 6, 19 through 21, he starts talking about, well, first one was who, who did, or I'm sorry, I'm getting all out of place. First one was how to build. I think that's a blank. I didn't highlight my blanks. I'm sorry. Uh, how to build was in 6.14. The next one is, is he even told him who to take, Genesis 6.18. He told him who to take with him. He, he, he take these. It would be eight of you. That's it. Now, don't you think that Noah had friends? Maybe not when he started building the ark because they all thought he was nuts. But, but before that, don't, I mean, classmates or people he grew up with, you know, people that he had served with, worked with, there were people around. Don't you think that even, even as bad as the world was that he still had some friends? Don't you think he wanted to take them and say, come on, there's room for one more? God said, take these people. And he took those people. When the rain started coming and those that, that refused to repent, those that mocked him, those that were outside and they started clawing at the doors wanting to be let in, don't you think that his human nature said, open the door and let them all in? But God had shut the door. And God said, I'll open up the door when it's time. And Noah did it God's way. It couldn't have been comfortable. It couldn't have been peaceful. It couldn't have been comforting for him to, to do it God's way. It had to seem, to Noah, it had to seem like foolishness. But he still did it God's way. He even told him what to take. Take two of every kind of animal. Except for these animals, I want you to take seven of these. And then make sure you've got enough food. He told him exactly what to do, exactly what to take, and Noah did it his way. And in the end result, Noah survived the storm and those. He followed God's directions. In Genesis 6.22, it says, Thus did Noah, according to all God commanded him, so did he. We often gloss over that verse, but that's our, that's our key. Don't put your pens away. We're not done. Just because your notes are filled doesn't mean we're done. That's the key to surviving the storms. Do it God's way. We live in a culture that wants to do it our culture's way. God's way. We get married. We make babies. Culture's way. Make babies with a bunch of different people, and maybe you'll end up marrying one of those. Maybe you won't end up marrying one of those. You only live once. God, God preaches moderation. He teaches moderation, not because he wants to restrict us, but because he, he wants us to, to have a full and abundant life here on this earth. And the world teaches excess. 
Excess in everything. Excess in money. Excess in property. Excess in food. Excess in everything. Enjoy your fellowship across the way for a little while. As you eat in excess. But we live in a culture of excess. Because if a little bit is good, more has got to be better, right? We need, we need more drugs. We need more alcohol. We need more cigarettes. We, we need more of all these things because if a little bit is good. You know, because Paul, Paul told Timothy to take a little bit of, little bit of wine for his stomach, you know, medicinal purposes. So if a little bit to kill some worms in your belly is good, then getting drunk every day must be even better, right? That's the culture we live in. Sounds kind of stupid when you, I use that word twice. I don't think I, I'd never use that word. It must be Ryan. He's bringing it out of me. Every time I look at him, I just, never mind. No. <laughs> Ryan's a great guy. Not only can he take a joke, he laughs at my jokes. He's good people to have around. If we want God's grace, if we want to weather the storms, we have to do things God's way. Whether we like it, doesn't really matter. Whether we understand it, it doesn't really matter. If God has said something is a sin, it's a sin. It doesn't matter if it becomes legal. It doesn't matter if it becomes socially acceptable. It's still a sin. As Christians, we're the ones that are supposed to be holding the banner for what God teaches. But as Christians, we're, we're very, very quick in the name of tolerance to put down the banner. God doesn't call us to be tolerant. He calls us to be righteous. By the way, he also doesn't call us to be intolerant. So let's not go down that road and just become people that you don't want to be around. Noah followed God's direction. This is our key to following the storms. God has given us very specific ways that our marriage is to be run. And we don't run our marriage the way it's supposed to be run. We run it the way society tells us. And we believe the lies of society. And they get into our marriages. And they get into our relationships. And they get into our churches. And we, we take society's view of things and we allow it to to control and, and, and dominate the way we do things, and then we wonder why they fall apart. The Bible's very clear. Men, you're supposed to be the head of your family, not your wife. But your wife isn't a slave. It's very clear on that as well. She should be your greatest advocate your greatest defender, and your wisest counsel. If you've picked right. If you didn't, well, you're stuck. Be miserable. You chose. You looked all around the world. And I've told some of you this. Emily. Okay, where's Zach? I can't make fun of Zach if he's not in here. Oh, he's out of the grill. He's, he's, he's cooking the food. He's cooking the food. All right, I won't, I won't use you. Dave. No. Tracy, you looked all around the world, and you said, look at all these men around this world, and you picked him? You're stuck. It's not as funny when I have to set it up. So, one, we need to do a better job of picking our mates. It might work a little bit better. But then when we're there, we need to understand, we're going to talk a lot more about this in a few weeks, about that we have a role in our marriage. And the lie that society will tell you is that men and women are the same. Men and women are not the same. 
That's a good thing. I don't want to be married to me. I want to be married to my wife. We're going to talk more about that. But we've allowed that to where we allow the women to run the, the, the household, to be the spiritual leaders. If there is even a spiritual leader in the household, it usually falls to the women nowadays. And, you know, praise God that we've got godly women that are standing up for, for men that are being slackers in their homes. But men, your wife shouldn't be doing that. And she wouldn't do that if you were doing your jobs. Forget what society tells us. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. And let it tell you what you're supposed to be doing. We have a choice. We can do things his way or we can do them our way. Noah chose to do things God's way. Throughout this series, we're going to look at what God has to say about our marriages, about our relationships. And each week, you're going to have a choice. You're going to have a choice, and you're going to say, you know what, I can do it my way, or I can do it God's way. I'll give you a little hint. When you do things your way, it's eventually going to fall apart. You're building a house of cards. And it just takes one good storm, and those cards get scattered everywhere. But that's your choice. God has given us the ability to make choices every single day of our life, and we get to choose. We get to choose whether or not we want to follow him or we want to follow ourselves. Every day. Not just in our relationships. But if we want strong relationships, if we want strong marriages... I encourage you to do it his way. He not only created you, he created marriage. He put all this together. He made all the rules. Doesn't it make sense to let him lead us? Let us guide us? Our life is full of relationships. This isn't just about marriage. You have relationships with brothers and sisters and parents and and children, you have relationships with people at work, you have relationships with, with people that you in, in church. The key to all these relationships is our first relationship. And that should be our relationship with Jesus Christ. In John 10, 1 and 2, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. What God is talking about here, what, what Christ is talking about here, is he's, he's giving a little symbolism to help us understand how important our relationship with him is. Because he is our only way to heaven. He's it. If somebody tried to get in another way, then they're a thief, they're a robber. We come in through the door. Jesus Christ is that door. In John 14, 6, it says, Jesus says unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. One way. That doesn't play well in society. That doesn't play well in culture. And you can think happy thoughts and, and think about daisies and puppy dogs all day long and think that's going to get you to heaven. It's not going to work. You could be a good person. You should be a good person. We should all be good people. The best of our ability, we should be good people. 
but you can't be good enough to get to heaven. People say, well, as long as you're sincere about something, well, as long as you're sincere that that'll get you there. I would imagine, and I know for a fact because I've been with him enough times, Ryan could probably give you story after story after story of people that he has met on the mission field that are sincere in their beliefs. And they're going to hell. In Thailand, we saw, I don't even know how many dozens of, of, of Buddhist monks. Those people are sincere. They are sincere in their beliefs to, to the point that they've given up their life. They, they are more dedicated to their faith than most Christians are to theirs. And they'll die. And if they haven't accepted Jesus Christ, if they haven't turned from their sins and turned to Jesus Christ, they will go to hell. There is no reincarnation. There is no nirvana. There is no purgatory. There is no limbo. There is none of these man-made places that we go for second chances. There is heaven, there is hell, and there is one way in, and it's Jesus Christ. That's it. People, the society doesn't like that because society says that's exclusive and that's restrictive. And it's just the opposite of that. You see, because not all of us can become Buddhist monks, so that's a pretty restrictive religion. It would be unfair to the world for me to shave this head. Some of you just need the little orange or red piece of cloth, and you're almost there. I'm not even looking at you, Ryan. But it's not about sincerity. It's about what you do with Jesus Christ. Because I can be sincere all day long. I can sincerely believe that cars aren't real, go stand in the street and get run over. Sincerity doesn't get you to heaven. Jesus Christ does. You can be sincerely wrong. And the vast majority of our world is sincerely wrong. And a big portion of that is because we are not going and we are not telling. You see, we know the man that walked on water. We know the man that spoke and quieted the storm. That man was God incarnate, Jesus Christ. If we know the man that can walk over the storm, if we know the man that can walk through the storm on the water, if we know the man that with a, with a uh, simple word, the water's calm, the storm goes away, why aren't we telling people? Our world is dying from storms. And we know the solution. Everybody's worried about this coronavirus. Everybody's looking for a, for a cure for the coronavirus. And eventually they'll come up with a cure for the coronavirus. And when they do, it'll make headline news. I know a disease that's greater than the coronavirus. Because it doesn't just take the body, it takes the soul. And that's the disease of sin. And I also know the cure. That cure is Jesus Christ. And we need to be making it headline news. Every single day, we need to be telling the world. Say, well, the world doesn't listen. Keep telling them. Eventually, they will. Eventually, they will. If you're here today, and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, a lot of this may not make sense to you. Let today be the day of your salvation. Here's the great thing about fellowship. 
because we're, we're about to have a time of invitation. Well, this is how this churchy thing works. Okay, we're going to have a time of invitation, and we're going to say, if you're a lost sinner, humble yourself and walk up in front of all these people and come and get saved. And people do, surprisingly, because that's a big hurdle to jump over, isn't it? And we're going to do that. And if you want to jump that hurdle, praise God. I mean, there's nothing that will energize the people of God more than seeing a sinner walk the aisle and get saved. But the reality of it is, most of us have been conditioned that that is almost unfathomable. And the great thing about fellowships is that when we leave this room, we're going to go sit down and we're going to break bread and we're going to have a time to eat and talk. And there will be people all around you, myself included, that all you've got to do is say, I'd like to know more about being saved. And we're going to stop everything we're doing. We're going to take you someplace private. And we're going to sit down and we're going to open up the word of God. And we're going to tell you everything you need to know about being saved. And then you get to do whatever you want with it. You can choose to accept. You can choose to reject. But at least you got the information. Fellowships are the best time for a church. Because we set aside all the, the ceremony. We set aside all that other stuff. And we just make it so, so simple. I'm not trying to discourage anybody. If the Lord is leading you to come forward during the invitation, by all means, come forward during the invitation. Because the end result will be the same. Myself or somebody else will take you and show you in the Word of God how you can know for sure when you die, you will go to heaven. We'll show you how to find that door. We'll show you how to find that way to keep you out of hell. Not because of what I say or anybody else, but what the Word of God says. Let's all stand.